In this episode of the OCR Underground Show, I'm going to talk about the first Spartan race of the 2020 season, the SoCal Super and Sprint, and give you my key takeaways. I'm going to share some research on overhydration and the idea that you might be drinking just too much water. And I have an awesome interview with Coach Tanya Peddington, who is a functional nutrition uh, nutrition therapy practitioner. Um, we get into her tips on dealing with food intolerances and her experience training for an ultra. Welcome to the OCR Underground Show. Each week, you get the latest research, training secrets of top coaches, and everything you need to crush your next obstacle course race and finish burpee-free. Here's your host, SGX coach, Mike Diebler. All right, well, welcome to the OCR Underground Show, episode number 68. If you want to check out the show notes for this episode, just head on over to OCRunderground.com slash episode dash 68. Well, I wanted to jump into this episode and let you know about a brand new sponsor of the show that I am incredibly excited to be partnering with. Uh, recently, I picked up a beater bar from Fitbar. And what this is, it's a revolving pull-up bar. So if you've done the beater obstacle in Spartan races, uh, it's kind of the same idea. You have a like a pull-up bar that has three bars on it, and it can rotate, and you can attach it to um, you, any any bar that you might have. So as you know, it is really tricky to train for some of these obstacles, uh, specifically some of these hanging obstacles, unless you're super handy and you can build stuff in your backyard, or maybe you do uh, have a gym locally that you can get on some of these obstacles, but sometimes it's just nice to be able to do something in your garage or just uh, have something easy that you can take around with you, and that's exactly what the beater uh, was like. And when I got it, it was just uh, awesome for my own training. I can just hop out into the garage, hook it up, and work on some of that hanging skill and, and going essentially through monkey bars without actually doing the monkey bars or going anywhere. So this is such an incredible tool. If you're looking, if you struggle for uh, the strength and the ability to get through some of those obstacles that you are hanging, uh, I would highly recommend checking out the beater bar, but they have some other awesome products that are definitely going to improve your, your grip strength and your hanging ability um, and a ton of awesome stuff. So, um, Check out their products that they have. Everything is made in the U.S. Um, you can go over to fitbarstrong.com. And if you use code OCR underground, you'll actually get 10% off your order just for being a fan of the show. So uh, definitely go check it out. Uh, Fitbar, no obstacle too great. And also wanted to let you know about one of our other sponsors, Venga CBD. Um, I have recently gotten uh, quite a few questions on just kind of how I personally use uh, some of the Venga CBD products. And I really have a nice one-two punch combo between the uh, CBD gels and the gel tablets and their CBD balm. And really, I'll use the balm when um, I've kind of just pushed it pretty hard and maybe I'm just extra sore or maybe feel kind of like I strained something from just maybe doing a little bit too much. Uh, for example, just a couple weeks ago, I had some, you know, just tension and some uh, tightness in my lower back that I could just feel. And, um, you know, just putting on the bomb for a, a day or two, it was just dramatically better. And um, really with just a couple days from there, I was good to go and ready to get back to it. 
So um, just love using that to just kind of help with some of those sore areas and joints. Uh, and then just using the, the gel tablets, uh, really I'll use it for two main reasons. If I just need some little bit of extra help getting, getting sleep, kind of quieting the thoughts in my head and calming down, uh, a great thing to do just to help at nighttime uh, to make sure I'm recovering and sleeping well. Uh, or if I've just had a really tough workout and I know I've really pushed my body, um, just using that to really watch the inflammation, keep it under control, and hopefully help uh, improve for my next workout. So um, Fenga CBD, their products are geared specifically with the endurance athlete in mind, so it works great for the OCR athlete. Uh, if you want to check out their products, head on over to vengacbd.com slash OCR underground. And don't forget, if you use code OCR underground, you'll get 15% off your order. All right, well, let's get things rolling with the Inside Mike's Mind segment, and I'm going to do a bit of a combo here. I'm going to do a, a short little race recap from the uh, first Spartan race, the Super and Sprint of 2020 uh, in Chino, California, and then I want to give my key takeaways. I, I always love leaving a race getting better in some some capacity. Um, so uh, this race, uh, this is the I believe the third year they've had it. I've gotten the had the opportunity to run it each year. And I have to say, I always love starting the year with this race. It's uh, very, very flat, probably the flattest course that I've run um, since I've been doing Spartan races, which is just a nice break from the, the hills and the climbing. Um, those are fun too, but just in a different way. But I, I love pushing the speed and the, and the tempo and the pace, and you could definitely do it um, in these these races. Plus that, that with the new Spartan distances where the sprint being a 5k and the super being a 10k. I know a lot of people have their issues with this and, and don't love it. Uh, I, I actually think it was fine. Um, you know, I, I can't say either way, like one was way better than the other. Uh, but I do like it being compact and more obstacle based with less, less running in between. Um, you have the beast distance that you, can do for that but with the 5k 10k it's uh, a fast course kind of back-to-back obstacles and um yeah i know i just know people were a little upset with that but it I, I thought it was fine we'll see how future races hold um with this race uh really no no new things to report uh, i know many people are disappointed but no new obstacles we'll see if that stays consistent with the rest of the year um, just minor changes to some of the old obstacles um, I believe they did this last year here, but I don't always see it. The Olympus uh, still very steep and has that kind of slick coating on it. Did have the balls, the grip balls at the end of the chains. Um, so I've seen I've seen that before, but I don't see it all the time. I don't know if they just test it out or if it's something that they're going to uh, use more often. And then really the big change, I think, was the uh, slip wall. Uh, again, I, I feel like I've heard people talk about this change last year. It was the first time I saw the new slip ball where it's aluminum. Uh, it is slippier, uh, more slippery. I, I didn't think it was that different. But with this venue, um, because of issues they had with the, the park, they were not able to dig out a dunk wall. So it wasn't very wet. Day two during the sprint, it was a little misty. So it made it uh, a little bit more slick. Uh, but really it wasn't a big issue at all as long as you're leaning back and holding onto that rope it really wasn't that much different but we'll see how much that changes when it is muddy and, and slick from dunk walls and things like that i think uh, maybe at the top of the wall when you finally have to lean forward that might be 
a little bit of a concern just because it's easier to slip down. But other than that, it was not not too much of a challenge. Um, but that, that was pretty much it. Like I said, I, I was okay with the distance, um, you know, setting it at the 5K, 10K. I, I'd like the speed of it. It was fast, lots of obstacles. Uh, I thought a great way to start the year, um, but looking forward to more races and, and see if there's any major changes going forward. So like I mentioned, each race that I do, I always try and walk away learning something that's going to help me or my clients, uh, you know, just prepare better for their next race. And, and this one was no different. And I think this one was a little bit more on the mental side. And I just want to share kind of an experience that I had and um, kind of what I took away from it. And this was during the super. Um, so I know a lot of people will give advice like run your own race and do your own thing and, you know, don't pay attention to other people. And and I agree. And sometimes it's harder to to follow that when something happens specifically to you. And that was pretty much what happened. So it was during two obstacles. So I was going up the A-frame, and they usually allow maybe two to three people uh, to go at a time. And so I'm going up, and there was two other people kind of all lined up going up there. And then somebody, how I was going, I was pretty close to the center divide where the metal poles are uh, under the cargo net. And I left maybe like a square of, of the net between me and uh, that divide. And I'm climbing up, and then somebody like just jumped up from behind me and was like almost climbing up the very middle uh, of the the net where that divide is, um, but was like super close to me and kept pulling me over, and it was like just super annoying. So um, I didn't say anything, but I'm like I'm just gonna go super fast and just try and get away as fast as I can because this is kind of annoying. Uh, so I get over and down, and then uh, the next obstacle was the uh olympus so i run over there and then just before it i'm kind of seeing which one's open and and i start walking and and planning out my path um before i hop on it and uh, the same guy actually runs kind of in front of me um and takes the path i was going to do and i kind of just stopped there and was again annoyed but was trying to be like whatever he'll go and i'll go a couple seconds after him no big deal um, but then he proceeded to go and like immediately started to struggle and was going pretty slow across. And now I'm, now I'm getting annoyed because all the other lanes are full and there's a lot line, like lines forming. Um, and I, I know if I leave this spot, I might be waiting longer somewhere else. So I'm kind of stuck here just waiting, um, thinking about all the time I'm losing by, um, by this happening. And so he eventually makes it across and then I go get across and, and then go. And then it just kind of annoyed me for the rest of the race. And I was, you know, trying not to harbor on this, but it was just, um, it just got to me. And I, I hate to admit that, but to be honest, it, it was just messing with me. And, you know, I can't say how much it like slowed me down, but it, it distracted me. And I was thinking about it when I could have been thinking about anything else to help with my race. And I, I you know, kind of goes along that lines of just running your own race. And, and, but when somebody gets in your way and, and kind of messes up your race, it's, it's easier said than done sometimes. And, um, what I, you know, kind of uh, liken this to is kind of that stoic philosophy, uh, or if you've read any of the books by Matt Holiday or no, not Matt Holiday, uh, Ryan Holiday, uh, like The Obstacle is the Way, and uh, the, the stoic philosophy of kind of like the, that you have control over your reactions to things, your emotions, your thoughts. That's what you mainly have control over. You don't, you can't control everything else in the world. Um, so... I, uh, after finishing this race, I just really was starting to think about that, like how, 
you know, cause it's, it's something that I try and practice. Like if I, if something bad happens, you know, I can't do anything about that bad thing happening for the most part, except controlling my reaction and maybe prevent it from happening in the future. And that's started what I think about like, okay, was there something I could have done differently? And it's like, yeah, you know what? I walked before I got to the Olympus and I could have easily just ran right up to it. Instead, I kind of got lazy and was trying to catch my breath. So I walked and it gave the opportunity for somebody to jump in front of me. Um, or I could have just said something like, Hey, I'm going there. Uh, let me go first and then you can go after me or, or something. I could have definitely asserted myself more to make it known, Hey, I'm going here. Uh, but anyway, th- those were things that I could have potentially done to avoid this whole thing in the first place. Instead, I kind of just let it happen. And then I reacted to it. And unfortunately I had those, a negative reaction and it kind of got to me a little bit. So, um, the main thing I want to take away or you to take away from this, so I don't ramble on too much is just this idea that, uh, you can control how you react to things. And if you accept that fact that you're not going to be able to affect uh, or change everything out there, but you absolutely can change your thoughts and your feelings and your response to, to things. And when you can control those thoughts, now that and my, that's my definition of mental toughness. And I think that's what a lot of people are looking for with training for some of these races and, and, and kind of getting prepped for them is just being mentally strong. And I, I think this is kind of the idea. And it's not just about race. This could be at work with family. Really, you're going to have these things happen to you every day, <laughs> most likely, um, where things just kind of don't go your way and you have a reaction. And now when you can acknowledge that, okay, like this sucks, like this shouldn't have happened, but now I'm going to um, have a better response to it. And what can I, can I do something differently? Sometimes like I, like my experience, I could have done something a little bit better for this not to happen. Uh, but maybe it's something like you, you don't like the rules or like, this is something you need to contact the race director or Spart Spartan or whoever it might be. And, and, but you're physically doing something. You're, you're not just going to complain about it and go online and, and bash people. Like, I don't, I, you know, I was hesitant to bring this up because, well, I, I don't know if that guy is going to listen and have any idea who he, you know, that I'm talking about him. And I don't, I'm not mad. It was just an event that happened and, I had a reaction and I wish I reacted differently. Um, and, uh, I want to pass that on to you and just make sure you have control over your thoughts and you're focusing on that positive thought, um, doing the best you can to turn anything into a positive versus just, you know, run your own race. I get it. But at the same time, uh, you have to be proactive with these things to really take control of that. And, um, like I said, just get mentally strong. So hopefully this helps, uh, with your race experience or even just your, your daily occurrence of when stuff goes bad and not going the way you want and how you can deal with that. All right, well, it's time for our research review, and this episode's research review is a little bit different than the normal one I do. Typically, I'll take a research study, kind of break it down, how they did things, um, how it's relevant for you, and kind of give you some practical takeaways. Uh, I'm going to do it similar, but I don't have a specific study. I have a few different studies kind of looking at a topic, and I really just want to talk about the topic of, of hydration, but really pay attention to overhydration. And this, I, I, I'll admit, I was a little hesitant because unfortunately how the whole you know fitness and exercise world works is we like to, we are attracted to extremes. So if I say water's 
uh, not as important as it was once claimed, people will then go, well, don't drink any water. And, and I'm not saying that, obviously. Clearly, dehydration is a concern. And there's, there is research showing that if you are uh, dehydrated to a certain point, it will have negative effects on performance. Um, but what you don't hear about is the fact that if you are overhydrated, that can also lead to decreased uh, effects in performance and even health risks. Um, so this whole idea of, of uh, dehydration and, and overhydration, when we work out or race, we're going to sweat, obviously, and we uh, and we'll lose water other ways, but we lose water in some form, typically with sweat. Um, we also lose other things like sodium is going to be the big thing. Now, if I sweat a lot and I'm losing a lot of sodium from, from a workout or a race, and I just keep drinking water to replace that fluid I lost, that's only doing part of it. Uh, if you're not changing your sodium balance, we have some major issues that are going to occur there. And like I said, these could potentially be life-threatening. And it is extreme cases, but that does happen where people drink too much water. And it could actually lead to things like vomiting, confusion, headache, even brain swelling, and and potentially death in, in extreme circumstances. Um because of this uh, imbalance in, in water, like if, if you're losing water, losing sodium, and then you drink a whole bunch of water, but don't replace the sodium, now you're actually increasing the, the fluid volume in your body, but not changing the sodium. So it's actually going to be more diluted, which uh, that can be very, very problematic. So let's look at some research here. Uh, so there was a recent study looking actually at the Boston Marathon. And they found a 13% prevalence of overhydration. And that might not sound like a lot, but if we break it down this way, if there were 33,000 people who ran the Boston Marathon, and I'm, that's not the actual number, but just throwing a number out there, uh, that means that 4,290 would be suffering from overhydration. And when they asked these people, they... Uh, felt fine. So it's not like this is something we, you're going to know um, unless it gets to a, a bad enough position where then, yes, you're going to feel nauseous and vomiting and headache and things like that and dizziness. Um, but even to the degree where they had that disruption in sodium and hydration balance, um, that's still a pretty large number of racers. Now, looking at another study, so what I'm saying, or, or I guess what I'm trying to get to here is that dehydration to a degree is okay and is probably expected for specifically some of these longer races. If you're going to be out there for a few hours, the idea that you need to kind of stay ahead of thirst and, you know, thirst, if you're thirsty, it's too late, that's probably not the best advice to give. Uh, we can follow, safely follow our thirst as a good idea or a good indicator of how hydrated we should be. Um, if we're just trying to drink and drink and drink because we're worried about being dehydrated, that's when we actually run into some of these issues. Uh, looking at another study, um, this was a French study back in 2009 where they looked at, again, marathoners, and they looked at basically on how uh, fast people were finishing, how dehydrated they were. Uh, they found that those that were um, running sub three hours, so a pretty fast marathon time, um, were on average 3.1% uh, loss of, of body weight for, for dehydration. 
those that were between three and four hours were at two and a half percent loss, and those that took over four hours were 1.8 percent. So you can actually see the faster people running these races are the most dehydrated. Um, I know uh, one of the elite marathon runners, and I can't remember which one it was, but he was reported to be like at a 10% um, decrease. So like significant dehydration there, yet he's running faster than anybody else. So we're looking at at one piece. Now, um, one of the things is important is what you do after the race, and we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Um, but what they're finding, those that are the highest risk to suffer from overhydration are the ones that are doing longer durations, so marathon, ultra marathon type distances. So if you're going to be out there for like four hours plus, um, this is a serious thing that you might have to consider. And in particular, like this once this French study found, if you're slower, you're more likely to suffer from this because when you look at those that are running fast, they are not able to drink as much because it's going to slow them down. Um, whereas those that are kind of running, walking, you know, going a lot more at a casual pace, uh, that you are allowed to, you or you're able to drink a lot more, and this might actually be causing issues. So when we have these races and you see how many water stations there are, keep this in mind. Do you really need to stop at every single water station? Do you have a hydration pack and you're still stopping at every water uh, water station? Are you filling up your hydration pack during the race? Did you really need to drink that much water? Uh, and are you putting any type of uh, sodium or salt replacement in there so it's not just water and water and water that you're drinking? So this might sound like something that you'll never have to worry about, but I think in actuality, most people should at least be considering this unless you're um, not drinking a ton out there and you are running at a pretty fast pace, uh, you're the least likely to suffer from something like this. So I'm more specifically talking to if you're out on the course longer and you drink lots of water, um, keep this in mind. Now, I will say this, obviously heat is going to change things. So if you are racing in a hot environment and you're sweating a lot more, then absolutely your water needs are going to increase. Um, but, and, and, uh, you know, I'll give some recommendations, but this is really hard to do because we are different. If you sweat more, you're going to have to replace things more. If you sweat less, you don't need to replace as much. So you need to know your body and play around with this. Um, I know like for me, for example, I, I talked about when I ran my ultra, I, I didn't bring a hydration pack and I didn't even stop at every single water station. I just stopped at the ones that I felt like I needed to drink something and it, it felt pretty good. I didn't, you know, feel bloated or have too much in, in, in my stomach at, at any point. I had it, you know, spread out. And I, if I did it again, I would probably do it the same exact way um, unless it, the weather was going to change. It wasn't a super hot race. So if, if that was the case, you know, I would maybe bring a hydration pack. But in this case, I knew weather wasn't going to be an issue. There was plenty of water stations. So I kept that in mind. And then I started to think too, you know, looking at my training, I never ran with water with me. I never like drank during any of my, even my longer training runs. It was always either before or after. So it made more sense to me to go into my race that way. Now I, I didn't run for as long as I was out on, on the course for the ultra. So I, I did um, obviously drink during it, but um, I kind of kept consistent with my training and I didn't want to be drinking nonstop. So kind of think about your training. When you go out there, are you bringing water with you on all of your longer runs? Um, then maybe you're going to be used to doing something like this, but at the same time, is it necessary? 
So um, some general recommendations. I, I think it's more important that the days leading up to a race um, and before a race, you're staying as hydrated as possible. Again, don't go crazy and make sure you are getting some electrolytes with that water. Um, and then after the race is over, doing everything you can to replace what you've lost. So if you've lost a few pounds from a race, you need to replace that with adequate fluid and, um, and uh, electrolyte as well, uh, electro electrolyte replacement as well. Um, during the race, so again, this is going to be more for the longer distance. Uh, the need for water during the race is going to be more important, but the recommendations you'll typically see is about 400 to 800 milliliters of water per hour, um, and then increasing that as temperatures do go up. Um, and it is recommended to drink more of that at one time versus uh, more often. So there are studies that show drinking too often will decrease performance as well. So when they ha give uh, athletes the same amount of water, but just one spread out every 20 minutes or so, and then one every five minutes, they'll see a significant decrease in performance, um, probably because you just have, you're, you have to drink more and it's hard to keep pushing and drinking at the same time. And the more often you drink, the slower your uh, digestion or your uh, your gastric emptying is going to be. So that water is going to sit in your stomach a lot longer. So chugging water will will empty out your stomach a lot faster than just sipping. Uh, so uh, I know I'm rambling as usual, uh, but just some things to consider. And, and like I mentioned, I'm not telling you to not drink any water. It's just keep in mind that it's okay to be a little dehydrated during a race. Um, you it, it's to be expected. Um, and constantly drinking water throughout the, the entire race might actually be leading to some of the problems that you feel during the race if, if you've struggled to finish. So, um, But what really, you're going to have to figure out what works best for you, how much water you should be drinking, and the appropriate electrolyte um, replacement as well. So play around with it in your training, um, and then just at least keep it in mind during, during your race. Just because there's a water station there doesn't mean you have to stop. Um, but if you're thirsty and, and you're feeling like you need it, then absolutely, you know, hydrate um, and, you know, kind of time your intervals on how often you're hydrating and, and about how much. So just some things to consider for uh, some of your longer races out there. Alright everybody, it is time for our interview and this week I have on Tanya Peddington. Uh, Tanya has been in the fitness in health and fitness industry for over 20 years. She is a functional nutritional therapy practitioner and diabetes specialist. She specializes in fat loss, fat loss digestive healing, and optimizing performance. Uh, she was a former cheerleader, figure competitor, CrossFit competitor, and then jumped into the world of OCR. Tanya, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Mike? I am awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time with me. Absolutely. So I gave our listeners a brief uh, bio, but I would love to just uh, have you dive in a little bit more and just let our listeners know a little bit more about you and kind of how we got to where we are today. Awesome. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I've been in this industry professionally now for 20 years. My, I feel lucky for me, my passion um, for what I do really began in high school. And I, I think it really began, you know, taking a look around my family and, and really taking note of the health of my family, both on, on my mom's side and on my dad's side of the family. And knowing that, um, you know, I really wanted to take control of my own health. And so right out of high school, I was hired as a personal trainer 
began um, obtaining my degree in kinesiology with a concentration of exercise science, because of course, my thought at that time was, you know, in order to be healthy, it was all about working out. <laughs> and which of course that is, you know, a big aspect of it. Um, so that's where I started. I began competing in figure competitions in 2001. Um, absolutely loved doing that. It really went along with everything that I was doing. I got into um, being a personal trainer, uh, personal training manager, um, became a general manager of several gyms because I thought that I thought that my future would be owning a gym because that was, you know, absolutely my passion. And so I got into gym management so that I could see if that really was what I wanted to do. My mom had always pushed me into saying, you know, whatever it is that you think that you want to do, whatever it is that you want to get into, make sure you work in that first to make sure. And so that's what I did for a long time. And as I was in gym management and I saw people coming in and out of the gym regularly, and I mean sweating, high intensity, working their butts off, and over the years, they just really weren't changing. And so that's when I really started to notice, okay, so you can't outwork a poor diet, you know, especially the older we get. Um, it makes a big difference. And so that's when I really switched over to getting into the nutrition industry because I wanted to learn more about the nutrition side of things. As I mentioned, my degree was in kinesiology, but now I wanted to expand um, what we can do with our nutrition for our health. And so fast forward to 2013, I believe it was, I opened up my own brick and mortar total nutrition store, um, continued my education. So I continue to do customized meal plans for um, clients. I also coach figure and bikini athletes. I no longer compete myself, um, but I continued my education to become a functional nutritional therapy practitioner because I knew that I really wanted to be able to dig deep with my clients. And this is where I'm able to you know, really dig into the lab testing so that we can see what's going on at, at much deeper levels for whole health. Um, and so, and through all of that, I got into, as you mentioned, um, CrossFit competitions. I mean, I, I traveled across the country competing in CrossFit and um, I competed in half marathon races. And then currently my main focus now are Spartan races, which of course is how I came upon your program. Awesome. Well, that's cool. And Ed, we'll, we'll get more into that. Um, I would love to know a little bit more specifically what you do to help your clients, you know, if we focus on that nutrition, because I 100% I agree that you, you can't out train a terrible diet. And, um, but people try, <laughs> and they try all the time. And it's I always, you know, kind of say if people would put the effort they put into their workouts, if they put that same focus, attention, and dedication into their diet plans, like you said, you wouldn't have people walking in and out of the gym with no, no changes and no progress. We'd, we'd see uh, a ton of progress because we'd have the perfect package with both those things working together. And you mentioned lab testing, and I think that's something that I don't believe many people do, but I do see how beneficial that that information will give you. So if you could just like walk through like what, what kind of testing do you do? Um, what kind of information does it tell you that you can help your clients with? Sure. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned too about, 
people and, and if they would put the same amount of effort into their nutrition as they do their training, you know, when people walk into my store and they ask for weight loss advice. And so I'll say, okay, what is it that you're currently doing, you know, making an attempt to try and and lose weight. And it's funny because everybody goes into their training routine. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we know right there. Okay. So we're not giving much attention to our nutrition, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So for my nutritional therapy clients, um, we do, I do a lot of digging. So we start out with a over 300 question questionnaire that allows me to really dig into to what is going on on the inside of them. And, and we can dig in way more than we can during any appointment together after they answer all of these questions. And from there, I go into, there are two tests that I require from each nutritional therapy client. One is a GI map stool test. And this is a stool collection test. And this is, I mean, the information we get from this is invaluable. This is going to let us know what we have going on in our our gut biome. Do we have, um, you know, what kind of pathogens do we have living in our gut? Um, You know, parasites, worms, viruses. But beyond that, it's also going to give us information on how well are we how well are we digesting or not digesting our fats and our proteins? Um, what's happening to the bacteria in our guts? You know, we all have good and bad bacteria, but problems arise when the bad bacteria is proliferating, you know, when it starts to take over. So we can really see the balance of all of those things because we're actually testing for DNA in our gut. Um, and so we get all of this information and from that we go, okay, so here's our healing protocol that we can put together. However, at the same time, we also need to do a food sensitivity test because any foods that we're eating that we are sensitive to are, they are stressors on our body. And so if we're doing this healing protocol, we have to take away that other stressor, which is going to be those food sensitivities. So we do that at the same time. We take away those foods that we're sensitive to. We implement the healing protocol, um, also some lifestyle interventions and it's amazing the results the the digestive healing that happens just from doing those two things and and we're talking this could be people who are dealing with acid reflux with bloating gas low energy i mean there's so many things that can be handled just by doing those two tests and when so if if we do the test and you um make your recommendations. I'm assuming it's going to be probably a combination of different things, food choices, maybe foods to eliminate, to supplements, to um, any, am I on the right track or is there any other uh, ideas that would go in there? Yeah, it's mostly, it's going to be a nutrition protocol, a supplement protocol, as well as a lifestyle protocol, you know, because it's also about how people are living. And a lot of times we tend to live in our, our, our sympathetic state, our fight or flight state, because we're you know going, 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 working, 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 and even training, training, training mm-hmm. is a stressor on our body. So really incorporating those lifestyle interventions to tap into that parasympathetic state, which is our, our rest and digest. What would be, if you don't mind sharing, just uh, maybe one, one or two simple things that you might recommend to make that shift, because I know that's a common thing that people are suffering, that they are always on that sympathetic side. Yeah. You know, one thing that I do, this is a deal that I have to make with myself. Anytime I train, as I tell myself, cause I really enjoy training. 
Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to go out for a run or I'm training here in our, our gym, um, whenever I am done, I require myself to go out to the front yard and take off my socks and my shoes. And I stick my bare feet in the grass for about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, and which is, which is called grounding. Mm-hmm. And you're really just kind of like pulling that energy from the earth, that negative energy that, and it's good for so many things. I mean, it's good for chronic pain. It's good for inflammation. Um, so that's one technique that I love to be able to incorporate with my yeah. clients. Yeah. And, and I know it's, it, that's one of those things that it sounds like too simple to work, but, yeah. um, and you don't, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it sounds a little bit out there and a little bit fringe, I guess. But I know I've personally seen studies showing just the concept of um, being in nature. And I think there's a term like forest bathing uh, or something like that, where just being out in the trees and away from kind of the cement buildings and streets and all of that. And just like you said, the effect it has um, just being out there for an extended period of time on like lowering blood pressure and heart rate and and kind of all the things that are jacked up when our sympathetic nervous system takes over. So um, such a simple thing that people will overlook because it doesn't seem like that should work, but it's been shown and proven to to be effective. It really has. It really has. Yeah. So that's something that I um, I really require of myself because it it really isn't easy for me to do something like that because you know because of my lifestyle is very go go go. But I it's, it's a discipline for me to, to make myself do that, but it's, yeah, the, the benefit is phenomenal. And a second thing that I recommend for all clients, and really this is for everybody. When we think about digestion, um, I often ask the question to people, where do you think digestion begins? And people have different answers. Most people though might, some people will say in the mouth, some people will say in the stomach, digestion actually begins in your brain. So that moment when we know we are about to eat. And if we think about, we have that thought that we are, we are about to eat and we can let our body acknowledge that, then our digestive system can start to produce the appropriate um, juices that we need in order to fully digest and absorb our foods. So one thing I recommend, it's something so simple, but when you're going to sit down and you should be sitting down to eat, never standing, you want to just take three big deep breaths and just to know, to let your brain know we are about to eat because so often we're just going, we're driving, we're standing, we're eating. And it's like, we haven't even tipped our body off that, you know, we're about to be ingesting nutrition. So it's just taking those big three deep breaths allows you to get into that parasympathetic state and allows your digestive system a little bit of time to prime before we start, you know, shoving food down our pipes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it makes perfect sense. And I think everybody's heard, you know, when they hear parasympathetic and sympathetic, they, you know, they think fight or flight for our sympathetic system. And then don't forget that rest and digest. And those things should kind of naturally be in balance. But like you were saying, when people are more on that sympathetic shift, um, it makes the other things harder, right? If you are high stressed out and, and really on that sympathetic side, uh, things like digesting becomes much more difficult because your body is preparing for stress and to do something. Uh, so any anything you can do to help 
encourage that that rest and digest is going to be beneficial. And we know just simple breathing is is a great way to do it. So I love that advice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I you you mentioned the food sensitivity testing too, and I'm just curious when you have clients go through this. I'm sure you have clients that are just shocked when they see foods that they are sensitive to, and it might me make up like the staple of what they typically eat. Is does that sound accurate? You know what? Yes. And really, here's the most surprising thing, Mike, because I think, you know, a lot of people are trying to make changes, right? Okay, I want to eat healthier. Um, I know that turmeric is really great for inflammation. So I'm going to start incorporating that every day. And then I know kale is amazing. And it's got some great amino acids. And I'm going to put that in a shake every day. And then all of a sudden, here comes their food sensitivity testing. So it's not so much that it's just foods that make up a bulk of their diet. It's foods that they have specifically been incorporating because they are supposed to be good for you. And then those things may come up on your food sensitivity, turmeric. It's like, who would ever think? Mm-hmm. And, so, and it's, it, it's uh, you know, I love that you bring this up because one thing I always try and stress with my clients is they have the concept of good and bad, mm-hmm. so, like, especially with food, like there's good food and there's bad food. And, you know, sometimes when you just talk in extremes, people get it better. When you think of like nuts, are nuts good or bad? And it's like, well, you can think of a lot of good nutritional qualities in nuts, but for some people it will kill them because their body's not able to to handle that particular food. Now, if we scale that back just a little bit, now you start to see like it's not good or bad in general. It's just these foods have good or bad uh, qualities for you specifically. Yes. So when you have a client, do you have any recommendations? Because let's say it's a food. So my wife did uh, food sensitivity a while ago, and um, there were a few things on there that she just really loves. And it, that was the struggle. It was, you know, some things were easy. It's like, okay, I can, I can cut out on some of these things. But when there's a food that it's like, I eat this a lot, um, what kind of recommendations do you give to help somebody kind of fight that? So here's how it generally works. And this is why um, I had mentioned that I require my clients to get both the GI map and the food sensitivity test. Because if all we do is simply remove the foods that we're sensitive to and continue to eat other foods that we're not sensitive to at that time, we're simply just creating new food sensitivities. Mm -hmm. Because these food sensitivities come from our, our gut, there's something going on in our gut. And so generally in our small intestines, we have some holes for lack of a better word in our, the epithelial lining of our small intestines where these particular food particles. So let's say avocado comes up on a food sensitivity test. It's not so much that we're sensitive to avocado, but we are sensitive to big pieces of avocado slipping through the lining of our small intestines and getting into our bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And so we have to go in there and heal that lining. So my point behind this is you're going to find out foods that you're sensitive to. And generally you come out with some reds, meaning we are really sensitive to these. You have yellows, which are, yeah, we're pretty sensitive to these. We take out the yellows for three months and we take out the red sensitivities for six months while we're going in and we're healing. So the nice thing is while we're going in there and healing, 
Then at the end of the three months for the yellows and at the end of the six months for the reds, we can go back in and test for those foods. You may just be able to eat them again. And that's our whole goal with this healing protocol is to be able to incorporate those foods again. You don't have to get rid of foods forever. Mm-hmm. There might be some, like maybe we take out gluten and there might be some things that a person choose, chooses to um, you know, take out forever because they feel so much better without them. But you know, those favorite foods that you have, the idea is you're going to be able to incorporate those again. Yeah, and that's a great point. And so to kind of explain this a little bit further, let's say somebody just does the food sensitivity and they say, okay, these foods, gluten, whatever is, is on there. Um, so when you said you might be developing new food allergies by simply just removing those, you're saying that we might actually um, have issues with other foods because we still have that issue with the intestinal wall and foods leaking through and, and you know having that autoimmune response from it. Exactly. Okay. And that makes sense. So um, now with these testings, how, it, how often would you be doing something like this? Is this like every six months or once a year or just kind of depends on the person? Yeah. So generally what happens is we run both of these tests and then generally at the end of the protocol, which is usually about 12 to 16 weeks, we don't generally run a food sensitivity test again, but we do run another GI map to see if we've cleared everything up in the gut or if we need to head into another protocol. Okay. Um, there are some times where I have clients, because a lot of this, of course, is based on budget as well. Mm-hmm. And so I have some clients who say, you know what, I, I feel so amazing that, um, and I really don't have the money to retest. And so some people don't retest, but ideally you would run another GI map to make sure that we've taken care of any pathogens or anything that was going on. Sure, sure. I mean, if you're feeling good and it's continuing to feel good, there's a good chance that everything is, sure. is looking pretty smooth. But just like anything, to have that pre-test, post-test to say, hey, this is working. This is clearly working. Look at your numbers. Look at look at everything here um, is a nice reassurance that we're on the right track and we can move forward. Yeah, people really love to have that data. Awesome. Um, well, I... I, I, we can talk a, a ton about nutrition, but I, I do want to make sure we talk on, uh, touch on training uh, as well, and specifically with OCR. So uh, how we met, you actually went through the just uh, recently, uh, well, I guess it's been a month now or so, you completed your first ultra, correct? Correct. Awesome. And you went through my training program. And I will first, I just want to know, what did you think of the ultra in general, just your experience, um, the, the race day, getting through it, getting your belt buckle, all of that awesome stuff. So what was your takeaways? I have to say that I thoroughly enjoyed it. I enjoyed it so much more than I anticipated enjoying it. And I don't know if it's because I was expecting a lot more pain or (laughs) I I don't know what it was, you know, and I had done a lot of research in terms of, you know, YouTubes and Googling and any article somebody had written about their ultra and all of that stuff. And, um, and so by the time I got out there, I mean, I just, I felt incredibly prepared at the start line. So I just felt very positive and great. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I kept thinking is I had done several beasts and at the end of every beast I would run, I would think, oh my gosh, there is no way I could go out there and do another lap of what I just did. (laughs) How am I going to do this ultra? Why did I sign up for it? But, 
you know, that's where I learned a lot of it is mindset because, because I knew going into it, okay, you are doing two laps. You just, you know that from the start, which is very different than going out there and knowing you're just going to do one lap. So coming into the transition area, I just was excited, very prepared and ready to rock when I took off for my second lap. I mean, it was, it was actually even emotional for me how (laughs) great I felt taking off for the second lap. And my husband even goes, a girl just left the transition area. So I booked it and I just ran past her and I just, I mean, I was just feeling great (laughs) taking off. So yeah, my overall experience. um, And I think it was on the second lap that I kind of was getting an idea that, you know what? I think I'm doing pretty good. I think I might be, you know, one of the leading girls. And of course that was um, very motivating for me. Awesome. And and, well, you can't let everybody uh, leave everybody in suspense. How did you finish? Yeah. So I ended up finishing second in my age group. And I was amazing. Yeah, absolutely thrilled about that. Now going in, did I, I, you know, and I, I shouldn't assume, but it, I think for many people, the idea is just finishing. I want to go out there and I just want to finish this, especially when you've never done it before kind of thing. So did you kind of have that mentality or did you think I, I want a podium or I think I can do a specific time or whatever it might be? Oh no, 100%. I just wanted to finish. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was, I was worried because you kept, I kept hearing that, you know, most of the people who do pull out on their own, it happens at the transition area. And I thought mm-hmm. that makes sense. I get it. Yeah. Because, you absolutely. know, you just completed 15 miles and you have to go do that same exact 15 miles. And so, yeah, no, I definitely just wanted to finish. Well, that, that's cool how even though you go in with that mindset, it kind of changed once you were out there that, um, you you had it, you know, it, it was, you were prepared and then it turned into, no, well, now I'm going to catch people or I'm, I'm now I'm going to push it and, and yeah. finish that way. Um, I, I can a hundred percent relate what you said on that idea of finishing a beast because every beast I finished, not one did I ever think I had a chance at doing another lap. Uh, <laughs> like there was just no way. And, but you're right. It's, it's all, I can't say all, but it's, it's heavily, mindset related and i think that's what people should really take away is you never really know what you can do until you just go out there and do it um not that you know obviously you need to prepare um but when you have that shift it's amazing what what you can do um i don't know why i just thought of this but I, probably because we were talking about nutrition and testing but you know anytime i have to get blood work done or any lab testing and i need to go and fast it i've had somewhere i just couldn't due to a schedule appointment times whatever i just couldn't get into the lab until later in the day so i just knew i can't eat all afternoon or all morning or whatever i had to do and i've had you know on a normal day i get i i usually do a little bit of intermittent fasting and i don't eat till later in the morning anyway mm-hmm. um but when I get to a certain point, it's like, okay, I really, really need to eat. I'm starving, all of these things that I'm telling myself. But when I know I can't eat because it's going to screw up my lab testing, if I eat something, it's not a big deal. Like I'm not hungry. Um, there's no issues. And it's, you know, another one of those simple things that we can't, it's, it's amazing how much the mind influences physical things. Oh, that is so incredibly true. Yes. So true. Yeah. So that when people say, you know, the ultra it's, it is that mindset thing. It, this is, I think what many people are talking about. It's 
it's that toughness that, or not even toughness, I don't want to say that. I want to say like confidence and trust in yourself that you can, you've done the work and now you're just doing it. Now you're just taking the test. You've done all the studying and now we just follow through and do it. Totally. And you know, I also, while I was out there, I, I had a mantra that I didn't have this mantra going into it, but I came up with it while I was out there and I must have recited it in my head a million times. I mean, you know, you don't have any music or anything while you're out there. And generally when I train, I run with music. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so I said over and over and over and over again, I am fast, I am energetic and I am strong. That's awesome. I mean, it just, and I really truly believe that that helped me so much. And it just, it was constant in my mind. Yeah, same here. So um, my mantra was I did develop it with training because it was something that I wanted to, I've never done that before. And I've just, you know, read some things and heard a lot about having a mantra and how it can help. And at, you know, training for the ultra, it was like, I want every advantage that I possibly can. Um, So I played around with a few things. And the one that stuck with me was, uh, it was just simply the phrase move the earth. And I always looked at my weakest when I felt the weakest, it was that my legs were just getting heavy and, you know, running was becoming uh, just tough. And I, you know, that's when I would want to quit and walk or whatever it might be. And I just kept this image in my head of me not running, but every time my feet hit the ground or my foot hits the ground, I'm actually pushing the ground behind me, you know, just like I'm spinning the earth as I run. And it it would kind of sound silly, like it sounds silly to say it out loud, but in my head, it just made me strong. And um, so I 100% agree, like having whether you know, that's to to think of it while you're going or going with something that makes sense and just makes you feel good will go a long way. Totally. Yeah, I was surprised at how much that I know that that really powered me. So you we you did uh, the training program that I came up with, so I, I do want to talk about that. And um, you said you were you felt prepared, so obviously that makes me feel good that I got something right on this on this training program. Uh, but I just wanted to get kind of your all overall experience with the training process, whether it's you know specific to uh, the program that you followed or maybe other things that you included with it, um, just to give others an idea of kind of what you went through to prepare for this. Yeah, I, um, I loved the programming. So of course, you know, I have a pretty extensive background in all of this. I coach other people. I, you know, I've been doing this type of thing for 20 years, but as you know, it can be very hard to coach yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I knew I wanted to find something, but there really wasn't a lot out there either for, you know, ultra training. And surprisingly enough, the way I came across your program was a uh, a sponsored Facebook ad that you had put out. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not real big on just finding sponsored things and purchasing <laughs> them. So, I mean, it was really kind of odd. And I kind of milled it around in my head for a while. And I thought, and I talked to my husband about it. And I said, you know, I think I want to try this. I said, I just think I need something to follow, a calendar, you know, something that's going to get me to um, to that race day. And so I did. And one thing that I would like to point out for people as well is, I don't know if you remember, but I contacted you about Mm -hmm. five months out from the race. So your program is a, is a 16 week program, four months. Mm -hmm. 
I purchased your program at five months out and I thought, hmm, how am I going to, you know, do this? Do I do the last month two times? Anyway, you had responded and gave me the great idea of, well, instead of just following, you know, the first month for four weeks, follow it for five. And then the same thing with the second month and the third and the fourth. And so that gets me 20 weeks. But one thing that I'd like to mention to people is, you know, if you are going to give yourself a certain amount of time to train for something, or if you think you know the perfect amount of time to train for something, start sooner Mm -hmm. because you don't know what's going to happen. And I, after I had spoken with you and got the great idea of how I'm going to implement, you know, that extra month that I had, I ended up cutting the bottom of my foot with a piece of glass pretty severely and wasn't able to run for weeks. Hmm. Um, and so and that's that, just yeah. maybe a little bit off topic, but also, this, you know, it's a big feat to take on this huge 30 miles. And so I, it's, I always say just err on the side of having more time to prepare because you just might need it. Um, yeah, abs- absolutely. And, you know, and with a plan like this and, and a plan that anybody creates, you know, it's, it, it we're, we're trying, we're doing the best we can to predict you know, a good starting point to get to the end point. But um, like with my program, when I, I try and um, let people know that I'm assuming that you're a roughly around a beast distance mm-hmm. training wise to get started into this one, um, maybe a little bit or, or at least close to a beast. Um, and then giving us four months from there to get you to the ultra beast. I feel pretty confident in being able to do something like that. If you if you're not sure, then you know, having extra time is only going to help you. And you can always fast forward through some things, but that's great advice because life gets in the way whether it's cutting your foot or it's getting sick or work gets in the way. Um, and that's the other thing I try and tell people is here's my perfect situation. We know life's not perfect, so you're we're going to modify and you know, we I'll work with you to help you figure out the best plan you could take there. Absolutely. Uh, so what, what advice, uh, you, I, well, you've given a ton of advice already, uh, but specifically with the ultra, what do you think are your big things that let's say somebody has never run one before and they're thinking about it? Um, what, what should they really be concerned with? Well, so for me, really the, the biggest thing was, See, with your programming, it made me do the things that I don't think I would have done on my own. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, when I go out and run, I generally just tend to run like, I don't know, nine to 12 miles and and I just leave my front door and I go for it. But I don't tend to incorporate recovery runs. Um, interval train, you know, there's all these mm-hmm. different types of training that you can do that I don't generally do just on my own. And so that's what was kind of nice with following your program. And there's such a benefit to, to all of those different attempts, you know, steady state running, high intensity, um, recovery runs, all of those, making sure that you're incorporating all of those instead of just doing the same thing every time. Yeah. And that's funny you say that because that's one thing a lot of the clients that I work with um, struggle with because they'll, they'll spend all this time with their strength and, and changing the sets and the reps and the exercises and, you know, really getting creative and coming up with some awesome strength workouts um, or like obstacle style workouts. But when it comes to running, a lot of times is, well, I'm just going to go out there. I have 30 minutes. I have an hour. I'm going to go run as far as I can, as hard as I can. And they're, you're really, you know, um, 
not getting all the benefit from a, a solid running program if you paid as much attention to all those things. And um, I, it, it took a while for me myself to learn this. And I think just I saw the benefit. So it's something that I was trying to stress with other people as well. Yeah, I think that was a, a great advantage of, of following your programming for myself. And I think also <clears throat> it really helped me. I think I would have been running too many miles too soon had I not followed your programming. Because I think it was still like in month three, if I remember correctly, I think the most amount of miles you had us running was maybe like 15. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the last month before the race that maybe we went above that 18, 20. And I think 24 was the most mileage you had us run. Although I had, because of who I am as a person, <laughs> I I took it up to 26.2 because I said, well, if I'm going to run 24, <laughs> then I might as well do a marathon. That is a good point. Yes. <laughs> so I did that. But um, it just, it felt at least for, for my body, for where I was at, the, the rate at which you increased the mileage, where you took it up to, where you backed it off to before the race was just, um, it, it was just fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, that's a, it's a good concept for everyone to understand that, you know, whatever the distance was. So if we're talking 30 miles, we'll say, um, the goal is to peak at 30 miles and not to be able to consistently run 30 miles or whatever that distance is that you're training for. If it's a beast and you're trying to get to 13, 15, whatever the distance is now, um, you are, you want to peak at that level, not from week one, be running 15 miles, 30 miles, whatever it might be. And running so many people get hurt because of over training and just too much impact and too many miles. And I like to think of myself as somewhat of a minimalist and training, like, you know, what's the least effective or lowest effective dose that we can still get all of this benefit from the training, but not the increased risk of overtraining. And that was kind of the mentality I had going into this to, to help people see that you have to get the miles in, we're going to get them in there, but we're just going to be smart and systematic on how we do it. Yeah. Yeah. It worked wonderful for me. Awesome. So I've taken a ton of your time and I really appreciate everything that you've, you've uh, given our listeners. I know there's a lot more that you can give and probably help uh, the listen, listeners to this show. Uh, if any of our clients or any of our listeners want to reach out to you, what is a good way that they can contact you or follow you? Well, so my Instagram is tanya.pennington. And Tanya is spelled with an A, T-A-N-Y-A. And uh, my email address, if they wanted to reach out, would be nourish to thrive, all spelled out, with Tanya at gmail.com. But you can also reach out to me uh, via my, my Instagram as well, which might be easier. Okay, awesome. And I will put links in the show notes uh, of this episode. So if anybody wants to reach out, learn more about the testing, uh, working with you or anything like that, they can reach out and learn a little bit more information. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mike. All right. Well, thanks again. And I'm sure I'll see you at some point on one of these courses out there. Sounds good. All right. All right, guys, well, that's going to do it for episode 68 of the OCR Underground show. A uh, big thank you to our guest, Tanya Peddington, and all the valuable insight that she gave during the interview. I hope you guys got a lot out of it. And uh, a big thanks to, of course, our sponsors, um, Fitbar. Don't forget, head on over to Fitbar Strong. 
and uh, Venga CBD, uh, visit them at vengacbd.com slash OCR underground. With both of those, use the code OCR underground to save some money on any of their amazing products. Uh, don't forget, you can visit the show notes for this episode where we will have any links mentioned in the show uh, at ocrunderground.com slash episode 68. And as always, subscribe to the show so you get uh, any of the latest episodes downloaded right to your phone or however you may be listening. Um, And if we've helped in any way, please give a review. I'd love to hear about how the show is helping your training. Uh, That's it for now. We will see you guys soon. Until then, keep training smarter.